Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. All right. Um, first time with us this morning, we're in the middle of a series called Foundations. And if you've been working with us through this, then you'll know that today we are in chapter number six of 1 Timothy, which puts us at the end of 1 Timothy. In this series, we've set it as our goal to work through 1 and 2 Timothy, chapter by chapter. So we're taking a chapter a week, working through the chapter. And there's a lot in these books that I've heard from you guys that have challenged you in a really personal way, which is really good. And that tends to be the way that most of the time when we hear a sermon or receive some sort of teaching, we often look at ourselves and go, okay, what do I have to do differently? What do I need to change? But one of the things that's really pretty cool about First and Second Timothy is that Paul is giving these instructions to the church in Ephesus. And he's telling them, this is how I want you to be a community. So one of the things that we need to do as we listen to these, these words spoken, as we receive this teaching, is tune our ears to hear, as a community, are there changes that we need to make? Are there things that we need to do better? Or, like I said during the prayer time, what, where is our house built on the solid rock? What are the good things we can capitalize on? One of the other things that is really important, it's going to be especially important today, right off the bat, is remembering that what we're doing, essentially, is reading someone else's mail. First Timothy is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a young pastor. And so we've kind of reached our hand to the mailbox, we've taken the letter, we've opened it up, and we're reading Paul's thoughts and his, his uh, directions to Timothy. And those were written 2,000 years ago, from one person to another person, in a specific time, in a specific place, a church called Ephesus in a city called, uh, a church, the Ephesian church in a city called Ephesus. It's important that we remember and we learn the context of these things. Because if we don't know the context of what Paul meant when he originally wrote these things, it becomes very easy for us to misunderstand how to apply those things today. Now, if you have your Bible open to chapter 6, and you don't have to, by the way. We're reading the scripture aloud so that we can all hear it, just like the early church would have done. But if you do, you will see that the very first part of this chapter has to deal with slavery. Okay, so we need to make sure we understand the context of what Paul is talking about before we go jumping to all sorts of assumptions about what he's saying to us here and now today. Um, today, I am gonna be the scripture reader to make sure that we have it loud enough for everyone to hear. So I'm gonna start with chapter, uh, verses one and two this morning if you're following along. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. Okay, now today's sermon is not about slavery per se. Um, to do that topic justice, I would need at least an entire sermon, if not several sermons, to talk about slavery in the Old and New Testament. So what I'm going to say today is, a very, is an overview, which means that I don't get to say everything that I want to say. I don't get to tell you everything I want to tell you. And there are some things I might not talk about, but my, it's my best 
shot at giving you an overview of what slavery was like so we can understand what Paul is telling us here. I hope that makes sense. Um, Slavery is mentioned all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. Our understanding of slavery from the Old Testament is mostly centered around the Israelites because that's who the Old Testament is about. Slavery for the Israelites is different than the slavery that you may have learned about when you were studying U.S. history. When you think of slavery, it's different. And, and one big reason it's different is that every seven years, slaves were set free. Every seven years was the year of Jubilee, and so slaves were set free. So if an Israelite was in some sort of slave relationship, free after serving for six years, that alone makes it hugely different, right? However, one of the places that does seem pretty similar to what you think of when you think of slavery is when the Israelites are captured by the Egyptians. They are put into slavery for 400 years in that setting. They are beaten, they are whipped. I mean, it's a terrible thing. So generation upon generation is is there. That's more similar to what you think about when you think about slavery. The New Testament, which is what the book of 1 Timothy is in, it's also a bit more similar to the slavery you tend to think about when you think about slavery but there are some differences, okay? Um, Scholars estimate that the population of Rome in biblical times, 90% of the population was slaves. That means only 10% were freed persons. So a large population of this day and age are slaves. There's a lot of different kinds of slavery in the Roman Empire. There are sex slaves, both adults and children. I'm sorry to say that, but that is one type of slavery. Um, You could be in slavery because you're trying to pay off some kind of debt. So let's say that you gambled, you have this debt you can't pay, you sell yourself into slavery, whoever buys you pays the debt, and then you work the debt off. Once you work the debt off, you get your freedom. So that's one way you could end up in slavery. Um, You could be a prisoner of war. You've been captured in some sort of a war, you come back and you are made a slave. Or you could be a person, born a freed person, and you might look at your life and say, you know what, I can't find enough food to eat, I wear rags, I'm sleeping outside all the time, I want a better life. And you look at some of the more wealthy individuals who have household slaves, and you say, look, they eat better, they have nicer clothing, they have a roof over their head, I'm gonna sell myself to be a household slave so that I can have a better life. So there are some ways that you end up in slavery that's forced, and there are some ways that you put yourself into slavery in the Roman Empire. These household slaves, it's the most common type of slavery in the Roman Empire, and some of those were used as tutors, professors, bookkeepers, wine tasters, cooks, or tailors. I mean, there's all sorts of jobs that they end up assuming. Um, And so I think what I'm trying to tell you is not all slavery is the same in the New Testament. When you think of slavery in your head, you're probably thinking of what was prevalent in the early American colonial times um, and through the Civil War, and that's, that's true in some places, and it's not true in every place. Now, when we start reading about slavery in the Bible, one of the first questions that we often ask, or the first uncomfortability that we have, is, is the Bible condoning slavery? Why doesn't the Bible just come out and say, slavery is no good? All right, what is a condoning slavery? And so here's the cool thing about being in 1 Timothy. We can go back to 1 Timothy chapter one, and when Paul gives us that list of wicked things that are outside of the circle we talked about on the first week of the series, one of the things on the list is slave traders. And slave traders is a word that actually means slave trader. It means putting someone into slavery against their will. And so 
Right off the bat in chapter one, Paul has harsh words to say about those who put people in slavery against their will, and that is that they're operating in a place of wickedness or outside the circle, as we've been talking about. Here's the thing to understand. Slavery is really hard to talk about. Um, Paul doesn't make his message to the Ephesian church a message of overthrow your slaveholders and set yourself free. If that had been his message, that would have been the only message. Instead, Paul's message is centered on Jesus Christ and how should we act in relationship with one another. In the world that Paul lives in, slavery is very commonplace. So if you go to church, which is what's happening in the Ephesian church, and you're a slave and your owner is there, how do you guys interact? Right? If you're the owner and your slaves are there, how do you guys interact? He focuses on a Christocentric, a Jesus-centered approach to relationship for everybody that's involved rather than focusing on, hey, slavery is wrong, black and white, free the slaves, because that would have been the one and only message you got across. If you get that message, you lost this message. And the honest truth, too, is that Paul really has in his head that Jesus is coming back in the very near future. So if Paul thought, hey, it's gonna be 2,000 years, would his message have been a little different? Perhaps, we'll never know. In his head, Jesus is coming back in a matter of years, not 2,000 years or 3,000 years or whatever ends up being. And so perhaps Paul would have had a different message if he knew that. This is the message he has. One of the things that we have to know is that in Roman times, the first century, Christians had very little political power, very little way to enact any sort of policy change. And that's where it would have come from. If you're gonna end slavery, that's gonna be a political move. That's gonna be, that's gonna be some sort of power. One of the biggest things that scholars and, and writers in that day and age said about Christianity was that it was a weak religion for widows, orphans, and the disabled. They, they thought poorly of it because it had so little power. All right, so Christians in that early day, they don't have the power to even really end slavery anyway. So Paul's message, and this might be hard for us to hear, Paul's message isn't about breaking the constraints, but working within the constraints. And that is a message that we hear from Paul over and over and over in the New Testament. He's the one who says, you know, to reach the Jews, I became a Jew, right? We talked about Timothy's circumcision. Timothy gets circumcised in Acts 16, verse two or three, right? And Right in Acts 15, we just learned that circumcision wasn't necessary. So why does Timothy get circumcised by Paul? Because Paul knew that if he's gonna take Timothy to reach the Jews with the message of Jesus, his lack of circumcision would stand in the way, okay? So Paul is this guy who says, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get the message of Jesus out there. I'm gonna work within whatever constraints I have. When he goes to the, the city of um, Athens and he comes to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, where all the philosophers are meeting. How does he share the gospel with them? He says, I've seen all the statues of all your gods. Let me tell you about that one that doesn't have a name. He takes something from within their culture, something within the system, and he uses that to share the message. So Paul's, his modus operandi is very much, I'm gonna work within the constraints. And that's hard for us to hear, I think, in our American culture, because we very much have a culture that's built on freedom, it's built on liberty, the pursuit of justice. And so when we hear, oh, we have to stand for the, we have to let go of trying to fix that problem and work within the problem to enact a change, it's hard for us because we wanna just take care of the problem. We live in a world of uh, Rambos and Rockies, right? When to just jump on in there and we take care of it, one man army kind of thing. But that's not what Paul does. Paul encourages teamwork. 
He encourages the power of togetherness rather than the power of the individual here. And I think that's important. So I said all this <laughs> to say what I'm about to say. And my prayer is, if this doesn't hit home right now, I pray that it somehow sits inside your brain and just goes off later somewhere, okay? Um, so here we go. Paul doesn't tell the slaves to run away. He doesn't tell them to break their vows, overthrow their masters, or kill their masters, because that's power over. That's what you might expect, a message of freedom. In the same way, when the Jews were expecting a Messiah to come, they expected a sword-wielding Messiah that would lead a massive army to free them from Roman rule. But what did they get? Not a sword-wielding Messiah. They got the Lamb of God, who was going to sacrifice himself on a cross for everyone, both the woes that followed him and those who didn't, for enemies and followers of God alike. So that would have been power over. What Paul says is, respect your masters. You'll find freedom in respecting them. He says, consider them worthy of full respect, or we could translate it, worthy of all honor. Why? If you consider them worthy of all honor, then our teaching isn't slandered. Our doctrine isn't being spoken against. So something about our doctrine here, right? Our circle, that's kind of our, our doctrine, right? It's love God, it's love our neighbor, love our enemies. And we know that all the prophets, so the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, the prophets and the law, hang on those two commandments, love God and love your neighbor, okay? Everything hangs on that. Our doctrine is that. And so if you were to overthrow your slaveholder, if you were to rebel against them, if you were to fight them, or you were to kill them, or you were to run away, if you were to deny your commitment to them, you would be speaking against the very doctrine that we've given you. Something about that sort of lifestyle is going to slander the gospel. Rather, Paul encourages them to live in such a way that our actions speak to our belief, our doctrine, and our relationship with Jesus to those we serve, even if we serve them out of obligation. The hope, this is an evangelism strategy, the hope is that the slave owner is gonna see something different about the slave. If the slave is going to church, if the slave says that he follows Jesus, the slave says that it's all about loving God and loving your neighbor, but the slave kills his master, we're gonna question whether it's all about loving God and loving your neighbor, right? But if the slave lives into that, perhaps it actually brings the slave owner to know who Jesus is as well. It shows them who Christ is, it shows them who Christ is in us, and it shows, him, it shows the slave owner who Christ is to us. Now, a perfect example of this, and there's, that's not really a perfect example in this conversation, but it's the best example we have. If you were to page forward in your Bible, just a few pages, you're gonna come to another book. It's only a page long, or maybe it's two pages in your Bible. It's called Philemon. And this is a letter that Paul wrote to a slave owner named Philemon about a runaway slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away from his slave owner. He comes to Paul, he finds Paul, he learns about Jesus, he decides to follow Jesus and learns that the thing he needs to do is return to his slave owner. So Paul writes a letter called Philemon that you have in your Bible and he sends it with Onesimus. Take this back to you, to Philemon. And he urges him, he urges Philemon to welcome Onesimus back, not just as a slave, but as a partner 
and as a brother in Christ. He urges Philemon not to punish Onesimus, and Paul offers to compensate Philemon for any cost that Onesimus' running away would have caused. Okay? Why can Paul instruct a slave to return to the slave owner? Why can Paul instruct a slave owner not to punish a runaway slave? Those have to be the questions we ask, especially from, you know, 2,000 years later as we look back on slavery and say slavery is terrible, it's evil, right? Why is Paul saying go back to your slave owner? Because as believers, they are bonded by something greater than any relationship the world has given them, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, now hear me. The relationship that Philemon and Onesimus are given, the relationship that these slaves in the Ephesian church and their slave owners have been given, they have been born into a world where slavery is commonplace. That's a relationship given to them by the world. But they are now brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ with each other. And that relationship supersedes any relationship that the world would give them. Now again, most of the slaves that are hearing the letter that we're reading this morning of 1 Timothy, they're household slaves. They get to be a part of the church. They have some measures of freedom. They have no voting rights. They have no way to make any policy changes. They don't have a ton of freedom, but they can go to church. The question that we have to be asking ourselves when we read this is not, is slavery okay? Slavery is not okay in no way, shape, or form. And nothing that we're saying this morning should be misconstrued to say slavery is okay. In fact, Paul's pretty clear. Slave traders, that's in the wickedness department, okay? So hear that. What we need to extrapolate from the story that we're getting this morning, Philemon and Onesimus, and this call of slaves to respect their masters, is what sort of relationships are in your life that you have allowed to be broken by the world rather than united by Christ? We have all been born into various systems. Systems that we didn't design, we didn't make, they've been handed to us, and we find ourselves finding our place in those systems. And yet, rather than being united by Christ, we let those systems divide us. And the easiest one to tap on is politics, right? Come on, nobody here designed the two-party system. We weren't born. Nobody here designed the Democrat Party or the Republican Party or the Green Party or whatever other party that's out there, but we all find our place in those things. And then we let those things divide us. We have allowed the political relationship to supersede the Christ relationship. First and foremost, we are family. First and foremost, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. First and foremost. And yet, we've allowed ourselves to be divided by these things. Think about it. Think about all the issues that we allow ourselves to get so worked up and upset over. The issues that make us write terrible things on each other's Facebook walls or send terrible emails or shun people and no longer talk to them because we heard they said this or they believed that or they voted for that person. Think about it. Issues of sexuality, issues of gender, issues of race, issues of serving in the military or military usage in other places, issues about immigration. I mean, the list can literally go on and on and on about the things that we allow to supersede our Christ relationship. Hear me, 
First and foremost, brothers and sisters in Christ. That is our relationship. First. And it's not just worldly things. It's not just politics that we let do this. It's also a whole bunch of church stuff. What about the rapture? When's that going to happen? How do you read Revelation? What's the correct way? Is it talking about something in the past? Is it talking about something in the future? How about hell? Is hell just the absence of God? Is there really a hell? Is hell a place where you burn for eternity and your nerves regenerate and you burn again? Uh, How does salvation work? What about infant baptism? Should we all speak in tongues? How about worship style? I want this song. I want this kind of song. I wish it was this kind of song. It's too slow. It's too fast. How about dressing up? Should I dress up nicely? Should I wear jeans? Should I wear a tie? Should I wear a button? Guys, we let all of these things divide us, and hear me, it is ridiculous. (laughs) Now, I'll say that not everything I just mentioned is a little thing, but in terms of our Christ relationship, these are little things. They don't even compare, okay? So, we get to discuss these things. You want to have a cool discussion about Revelation? Man, have that discussion. You want to have a discussion about immigration policy or immigration reform? Have that discussion. That is great. But hear me. You get to have that discussion as family, not as enemies. You get to have that discussion as friends, not as people who are trying to antagonize each other with your beliefs or your stance on those things. We use our power within the relationship rather than exerting power over the relationship. The thing that we must be looking at when we read these first couple of verses is what sort of things of the world have we allowed to divide us? Because something as grotesque as you and I look back on and think about slavery, Paul has said, guess what? Slaves, return to your slave owners and treat them like you would treat Jesus. Do your work the very best you can as a way to reach your slave owners. He says the same thing to women who are married to somebody who isn't a believer. He says, stay in your marriage because maybe by living the best life that you can, by following Jesus the best way you can, you'll reach your husband. Paul's evangelism strategy is always staying within and working within. So our call, if we're going to listen to this, if we're actually going to apply this to our lives, our call absolutely has to be staying in relationship with one another regardless of what it is that you're letting divide you or get you worked up. It is such silliness that we allow these things to divide us so acutely. Or face masks, right? There's another good one. Come on. This stuff can't divide us. We need to be united by Christ. And if we can't be united by Christ then our relationship with Christ, our understanding of who he is, it is either too small or too immature. So we need to grow. And so here for me, we need to grow up. Okay? Oh, I have one more thing in my notes I'll say. Disagree, but do it charitably. When you fail to disagree charitably, apologize. When you're done, hug it out. Okay? All right, let's keep reading. Uh, Verses uh, three to five, here we go. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. 
I am so convinced that Paul would have failed English in high school because he is the master of run-on sentences. They're a mouthful, aren't they? They go on forever. There's not a whole lot to explain with this passage, quite honestly. It really does a good job of explaining itself. But I want you to consider this. Think about your own life now and consider the false doctrine that you have in your own life for a moment. And you might think, initially, you're like, well, I don't have any false doctrine. Okay, hear Paul's words. Look at these verses, three to five, as I say this. Anything that leads you to an unhealthy interest in controversy, anything that leads you to quarrels about words that reside in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, and constant friction is a false doctrine. Anything that leads you out of the circle is a false doctrine, okay? So think about what's in your life that is just pulling you from inside the circle, outside the circle. The things that you fixate on that pull you outside, the things that wanna make you fight, the things that wanna make you argue, those are false doctrines. If I find myself desiring controversies and arguments, then my interest is unhealthy and I need to back up, okay? So if I am being pulled out of the circle by something, some fixation on a new piece of truth or a new piece of evidence or a new theory, a new whatever it might be, if it's taking me out of the circle, no matter how good you think it is, if the only way you can respond to it is outside of loving God, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, then you need to back up, back into the circle and figure out how to reapproach it. The, the word here that Paul says, um, he says that it's a, an unhealthy interest, it literally, that word means sick, okay? So the constant desire for fight or debate, it's a sickness, it's unhealthy. What is it inside of you that makes you wanna constantly fight with other people? That's the thing that is a false doctrine in your life. That's the thing that we must stay away from, push away, pray about, get rid of, whatever it is, okay? doesn't mean that there isn't some good stuff to stand up for. I'm not saying that. If it's a good thing to stand up for, it's a good thing to go to bat for, then you should be able to do it from within the circle. You should be able to do it from a place of love. You should be able to do it from a place of faithfulness and patience and kindness and gentleness and joy and self-control. If you can do those things, then it's a good thing for you to fight for. But if the only way you can fight for it is one of these things out here with violence or envy or jealousy or slander, guys, it is not a good thing to fight for. It's dirty. Let's keep reading. Verses six to 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who wanna get rich fall into, a, fall into temptation and a trap into the many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So hear these words from Paul again. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. So why should we be content in this life? Because there is nothing, nothing that this world can give you that is any addition to the person that Jesus made. 
Be content with the person that God made you to be and realize that there isn't anything in this world that is going to make you any better in God's eyes, any closer in God's eyes, any more righteous or any less sinful in God's eyes. Nothing in this world can give you any addition to the person. The only thing that can give you any addition to the person is the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. So if you can begin to see the world this way, and rather than chasing funds and wealth and stuff and pleasure and all of that, if you recognize that none of that actually makes me any better in God's eyes, then I can suddenly be content in the person that God made me to be. Suddenly I can realize the only thing that actually makes me any different in God's eyes is my relationship with Jesus. And if I see the world that way and I stop chasing all that other stuff, suddenly I can be content with all the little things like, hey, I have enough food this week. Hey, I've got clothing. That's what we're called to be content in. What a blessing those additions are when we see them as blessings and not as these things that we deserve or we have to chase down. God takes care of us. That's one of the reasons that he creates this body right here, this church, this gathering, this community, this assembly, the ecclesia, that means assembly. It's so we can take care of each other. That's one way God takes care of us, is by giving us one another. And instead of taking care of each other, we can go back a couple of verses and be like, well, we allow ourselves to be divided. We let ourselves get full of hate. No, that's not the point. That's not why we gather. We gather to care for each other. We get to reflect who Jesus is. So Paul goes on to say, he says, look, the people who want to get rich fall into traps. So the focus on wealth today, if we're bringing this into the modern world, that could be monetary for sure, but it also could be social because there's a social wealth, uh, how people think of me, what I can get them to do for me, that sort of thing. Paul says that those are traps and they lead to ruin and destruction. In Greek, both words just mean destruction, but the second word has an eternal implication. Ruin and destruction. Ruin is talking about here and now on earth. The destruction is talking about something that's eternal. Okay, there's, there's, there's two different things there. So let's put it all together because there's four very serious remarks that Paul makes about wealth right now, okay? He says, people who want to get rich focus on the desire for the wealth and they, one, will fall into temptation. So there's some sort of temptation that is present for those who are just focused on wealth that is not present for those who don't do that, right? They fall into temptation. Um, and then two, into a trap. So just the, the whole like chase of the almighty dollar is a trap in and of itself, which leads to three foolish and harmful desires that four, plunge people into jeopardy now and for eternity. Now, Jesus talked more about money than almost anything else. So Paul is here is really just re-saying things that Jesus has said, but this is, this is something that we need to pay attention to, especially in the culture we live in today. Money is, and he leads right into this, right? He says that one of the most misquoted pieces of scripture, by the way, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not, not money, not having a good job, not having a pension or investing well, that's not the root. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Love of money. 
Love of money doesn't put you in the circle just because, I think we said this before, the word love is in there. This circle is love God, love your neighbor, and love your enemy. Loving anything else, that's idol worship. That's idolatry. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So I don't know that I need to bring it home more than that. Paul does a fine job of it. But what I will say is this. We each need to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit's doing in us right now. So if there is anyone that's feeling a sense of uncomfortability within their spirit, pay attention to that. Lean into that. Why are you feeling uncomfortable? What might the Holy Spirit be saying to you in the midst of this about wealth or about your your desire for it or your seeking of it? How am I chasing money? And ironically, at what expense am I chasing it? Okay? Uh, Verses 11 to 16. He says this to Timothy. But you, man of God, Flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Mostly, I just want us to appreciate the beauty of that prayer. That's what that ends up being right there. It's sort of a commissioning statement being spoken over Timothy. And I think it's quite beautiful. For those of us at Kanoi, as we read this, um, you know, the circle of love that we've been talking about this whole series has really guided a lot of our conversation. It's helped us make it practical. What's Paul's call on Timothy? Let's make it practical. And what Paul is saying is here is that it can be a fight to stay in the circle. And he recognizes it can be a fight. There's a lot of things that want to pull you out. It can be a fight to stay in there. It can be hard. So he says, pursue these things. And what are the things? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Everything but godliness is already in our circle from our conversations. Pursue these things. And the word pursue is dioko, and it means a lifelong pursuit. It's, it's, a, it's for as long as you have breath in your body, pursue these things. Eugene Peterson is a name you might know. He's the person that authored the message, and so maybe you have a Bible, and the, uh, the translation type is the message, but uh, he was a pastor. He passed away in the last uh, couple years, I think, but he said that following God is a long obedience in a single direction. There's no better words that I can sum this up than that. It's a lifelong battle to stay in the circle. Paul recognizes that. And it's, for, it's a lifelong obedience in a single direction. And that's moving in the circle, not out of the circle. Okay? Uh, verses 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Clearly, we're talking about wealth for a reason this morning. 
There must have been a number of wealthy Ephesians who had joined the church, and Paul wants to just reiterate, look, just because you're rich doesn't mean you should be arrogant and you shouldn't carry an air of superiority. Paul doesn't think that that stuff matters. If you remember from our Philippians study earlier this year, Paul said that all the stuff of the world that the world thinks matters, things like titles and education and power and fame and fortune, he says, it's all rubbish. And we learned a fun Greek word, skubala, which means rubbish, all right? So he's saying, look, that wealth stuff, that doesn't make you better than anybody else. That stuff is rubbish. You shouldn't feel superior about it, and you shouldn't be boasting in it. If you're gonna boast in anything, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, you should boast in your weakness, because where you're weak, God is strong. That's where you should boast, not in your money. If anything, those who are wealthy are coming into the church, they need to be constantly weary of falling prey to the traps that Paul just outlined and talked about. Your life's actually gonna be harder to follow Jesus with your money. That's why we have this whole awesome story where Jesus talks to a rich man. One of the traps that folks who are wealthy are gonna find themselves falling into is putting their trust in wealth. And Paul corrects this and says, look, wealth is uncertain. In modern day terms, stock markets crash. Retirement accounts can be embezzled. Investment properties can be trashed or squatted in or burned down. Banks can be robbed and you get my point, right? It's uncertain. One of the traps that we can fall into is becoming so myopically focused on our wealth that we are so full of anxiety, wondering, do we have it? Do we have enough? Is our investment making a good return? And when we do that, we totally end up missing out on the blessings and the opportunities that God has for us because we're focused on one thing, love of money. And Jesus tells us we can't have two masters, right? So instead of seeking monetary wealth, Paul gives them something else to seek. He says, be rich in good deeds. And uh, just, you know, be generous and willing to share. The word for good is a mouthful. I'm not even gonna try and saying it. But what it means here, it's, it's a do- double word repeated twice, just like we did last week, right? He's saying, be good, good. Be good, good. You know, in the entire Bible, this word and that double use of it is only used in one other place. Be good, good. It's used in Acts chapter 14, verses 17. And you know who's doing the good good there? God. God is doing the good good to all of us. And he's doing it by sending us rain from heaven, fruitful crops in season, and filling our hearts with joy. That's the good good that God is doing for us. That's his witness to us. He doesn't leave anyone without a witness to his glory. Maybe they don't know his name. Maybe they've never had the opportunity to have his word, but he sends them rain. He gives them crops. He puts joy in their hearts. This is the good good. This is God's evangelism plan. Do the good good. And so you and I too should also do the good good to brothers and sisters, to non-believers, to strangers, to enemies, as a witness. So if we must gather wealth, if we need to chase something down, let it not be the dollar, but let it be the good good. And when someone says, why do you do that? Why do you live that way? That's your chance. That's when you get to answer. I do that because that's what God calls me to. I do that because Jesus has done it for me. I do that because Jesus has given me so much and I just want to give something back. I do it because I love Jesus. I do it because Jesus loves you. There's so many ways to answer that question but you only get to answer that question if somebody asks you because you're doing the good good. 
Let's uh, finish up the chapter here, verses 20 21. Paul says, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. So Paul, as any good teacher, has given Timothy a deposit of knowledge. You know, and for us, we've taken it and simplified it into this tool, this circle of love. We've said, look, if we can simplify this following Jesus thing down to the very core, it's love God and love your neighbor. And neighbor does include your enemies. And everything that's written in the Old Testament depends on those two commandments. Those are Jesus' words, not my words. But if another teacher comes along and says, Jesus, following Jesus has nothing to do with loving God and loving your neighbor, then you know that's a false teaching. You must guard yourself against it. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I've given you so much, now guard yourself against any false teacher coming in and saying, it's not that. The words of Jesus tell us that we live in a certain way, and when somebody else comes along and claims to have some sort of special knowledge that leads us in a different direction, we must turn away from the things that would guide us incorrectly. And that's it. That's chapter six. That's 1 Timothy. We're all done. Um, 1 Timothy packs a, a punch in some places, doesn't it? Next week, we're gonna start 2 Timothy, and uh, at our best estimate, 2 Timothy comes six to eight years after 1 Timothy. And most scholars believe that 2 Timothy is the last book that Paul will write before he's executed. So in so many ways, we get to see Paul's sort of final thrust in his last days, while he's in prison, while he's facing the very end, what are the things that he wants to finally impart on this student named Timothy? And so there's an urgency in 2 Timothy that's not there in 1 Timothy, and I'm excited to walk through that with you and see where it takes us. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.